Well, we're going to go ahead and continue our series this morning on uh, Romans. We're going to be doing going over chapter 2. So uh, this morning I'll be ministering to you on how there's no partiality with God as we continue on into this series. And uh, the rate things are going, this is going to be a four-month series. There's 16 chapters, and I'm only getting through a chapter a day. But praise God, it's an incredible book, and there's a lot of stuff that we can learn. It's uh, kind of the gospel all packed into one. So in, in Romans chapter 2, Paul spends his time in this chapter basically explaining to the Jews and, uh, that there is no partiality with God. That there's no, uh, the Jews, just because they received the law, it doesn't mean that they've got some special preferential treatment from God or that God uh, values them more highly than the Gentiles. He's basically saying that, that there's uh, not one set of requirements for the Jews and a different set of requirements for the Gentiles. And his love is the same for either one of them. The thing is, though, this requirement for both is perfection. You know, and then he gets into that. This requirement for both is, is perfection. And we'll really begin to dig into that a little bit more in uh, chapter 3 and, and how we achieve this perfection. But uh, right standing before God requires pureness and cleanliness and righteousness. And basically it means that we must be without sin. And this requirement is the same for Gentiles, Jews, slaves, freemen, rich, poor, and men, women. This requirement is the same for all of us. And it's odd to us because it's in our nature to show partiality. It's in our nature to, uh, to, to show somebody more favor than the other. Many times we show our family uh, a greater amount of favor than we show people that aren't in our family. Uh, we'll show... You know, even though no one wants to admit it, there's almost always a kid that you like the best, right? <laughs> Just kidding, that's not true. Everybody, every kid is equal. <laughs> Praise God. But, uh, you know, we like to do certain things more. You know, I like to run more than John likes to run. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Praise God. There's, you know, we, we like things more than we like other things. And uh, uh, we see that. You know, some people like watching sports. Some people don't. There's people, we, we show partiality to different things depending on how we fancy it. But the truth is that God never shows any partiality at all. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter, you know, in that time if you were a slave, if you were free, if you're a blue-collar worker or a white-collar worker, if you have no job at all. You know, the truth is that the, the person that is homeless on the side of the street that has no home and no job and no family and no money, God loves him just as much as all of us. And just because we seem to be in a better circumstance in our life doesn't mean that God favors us more. That's one of the, the biggest fallacies that we can get into is, is we look at the world and we see these people that are, that are actors and they're making tons of money and they're like, man, they're living such a terrible life. Why is God giving them all this stuff? And we'll look into that later on in the series. But the truth is that, uh, that what you have, what you're doing, is not an indication of God's love for you. Let's go ahead and look at the first scripture. Romans 2.1, it says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You know, judging others can have some pretty terrible consequences in our lives. For a number of reasons. One is basically by holding somebody accountable to a certain standard, you've actually held yourself accountable to that standard. And that's one of the problems that the, the Jews were having is they were, they were pointing fingers. You guys have heard the expression when you, when you point the finger at somebody, there's three more pointing back at yourself. 
basically you're holding yourself to the same standard. You remember Jesus said, why do you point at the sliver in somebody else's eye when there's a log in your own? You know, why are you pointing at that minor thing in their life when you're doing something way worse? You're doing the same stuff. And if you recall, even at Bible study, we were talking, uh, when we were going over the, the book of Acts, it says that we were studying how the Jewish Christians were trying to, trying to have the, the, the uh, Gentiles get circumcised. And basically, Joseph, that, that wise disciple, said, why are we trying to hold them to a standard that even we can't obtain, even we haven't been able to obtain? The truth is, when you hold somebody to a standard, you've essentially held yourself to that standard. I used to work with a a man at a at a, a restaurant, and he he was always disgusted by the. Especially, we'd have these big parties, Old Pueblo Grill, and, and I don't know if you've ever been there on on Grand Albernon. It's got this huge outdoor patio area, and we'd run out the whole patio area and have these huge parties. People would get drunk, and they'd do stupid things. They'd say stupid things, and and they were just you know <laughs> they're just living in this world, unfortunately, and. Uh, he used to get so mad at them. He'd be so disgusted, like literally disgusted by the way they were acting. And, and I always thought it was weird because he did a lot of the same things, maybe behind closed doors, maybe not out in the open, or even some things that were different. But he would, you know, it's just hypocritical attitude. And I, was, I couldn't understand why he would behave that way. Why, why would you think so bad of those people? But I think the problem is that, that we can sometimes do the same, very same thing. We look at people and we begin to think, oh, I can't believe they do that. I, oh, I can't associate with them. I, oh. Now, and I don't mean don't associate with them in the sense that you, know, you don't need to be partaking in it, but you shouldn't. Uh, we need to see people with God's eyes. How does God see people? If you recall, Jesus went and sat with the tax collectors and the, the liars and the thieves not because he agreed with what they were doing, but because he loved them and he wanted to extend his grace and love to them. And we should do the exact same thing. The truth is that if we can't extend that same grace and, and uh, forgiveness to other people, the reason that happens is because we don't actually believe inside that God's extended the same grace and forgiveness to us. Otherwise, we're extremely prideful thinking that God only extends his grace and forgiveness to us and it's not for everybody else. But I think more of it goes is, is that there's somewhere in the back of our mind we don't really believe that God did that for us. So we can't understand when we see other people that he would extend the same grace and forgiveness to them. But the truth is that he will. And the funny thing is, is when we hold ourselves up to this, this standard, you know, we, we look at other people and we claim they can't do that, then basically we've, we've removed ourselves from that grace of God. Because when we do the same things or similar things, if God can't forgive them, why could he forgive us? Finally, we also, we reap what we sow. We all know that saying, you reap what you sow. There's an old wise man sitting in the gate of an ancient city, and a, a young traveler stopped before entering the city, and he asked this, the, the old man, what kind of people live in this town? And the wise man answered with a question, what kind of people were in the town you just came from? He says, oh, they were liars and cheats and thugs and drunks. They were terrible people. And the young traveler replied, the old man shook his head, the people in this town are the same way. But then later, another stranger passed to ask the same question. And again, the wise man questioned his answer. So what kind of people did you just leave? And the second traveler answered, Oh, I left a fine town. The people were good and kind and honest and hardworking. And the wise man smiled and said, The people in this town are the same way. So the truth is, is that people that are kind and forgiving towards others tend to get that 
same response in return. But if you're accusatory and you hold and you're hypocritical and you treat people in a poor manner, the truth is that they're going to treat you in the same way. This this holding somebody up to a, a standard, we actually practice the same thing, and we we condemn ourselves when we judge someone unfairly or unrighteously. And this is not to say that in the church that we don't hold people accountable. This is more dealing with these righteous Jews who are dealing with the Gentiles who weren't saved. They're, they're holding them, them basically at this time. Though if you remember at the end of chapter 1, Paul was going on and on about all the terrible things that the Gentiles were doing. And basically the, the Jews and their righteous and their and their their pride of who they are, oh yeah, they're terrible, they're horrible. And he's like saying, well, wait a minute, you guys do some of the same things. And you're holding yourself to a different standard than them when you should be holding yourself to the same standard of them, and that is God gives grace and forgiveness. And then in Romans 2, 2 through 4, it says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The fact of the matter is there's no doubt that there's a judgment due for those who are not, that are not righteous. For those who, who perform ungodly acts, there's a judgment. There's a judgment coming. There's, there's no doubt about that. The, the wages of sin is death. But that's the very reason that Jesus came. Because there was a price that had to be paid. And he came to pay it. Pay it for us. And the reason that the penalty has to be paid is, is God is a just God. And without the payment, without the, the, the sin being paid for, there is no justice. You know, when you just ignore something, that's not justice. There has, the, the penalty for sin has to be, be paid, and we know that the, the penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So God is like the judge who passes the full penalty, penalty on to, to someone who had an infraction, who had a fine, but as soon as he imposes the full penalty, slams the gavel down, the judge gets off gets off his chair, walks down there, and pulls out his wallet and pays for it himself. And that's what God did, is, is basically he sentenced all of us to what we, what we deserved. He said, you know, the, the wages of what you've done is death, and there's, there's no way around it. I can't just turn a blind eye. I can't just ignore it. You're found guilty. But then he got off of, his, off of the, uh, the throne, and he walked down, and he opened his wallet, and he sent his son to pay that very price for us. See, the problem that we have is that when we pass judgment on others and we claim that nobody has hope, that, that we claim that somebody else doesn't have hope or we condemn them, is, is, is essentially that we've done the same for us. When they behave immorally we say that there's nothing that be, can be done for them, we're basically saying that the same is true of ourselves because we're just like them before Jesus came into our lives. I mean, we can all look back at our lives and even the best of us have stuff that we probably wish we could forget. But I thank God that Jesus paid for that stuff and that we can have a clean conscience before God. And also the problem with self-righteous, the self-righteous attitude can even be seen in how we use the word. We call it self-righteous because we're basically saying that it's our self that has made us righteous. 
you know, God said that he sent the, the free gift so no man can boast that it was me, that it was that I did it in myself. But that's what self-righteousness is. They're basically, you're basically saying that uh, my righteousness comes from how I performed. My righteousness comes because I don't lie and I don't cheat and I don't steal. It's, it's how I perform that makes me righteous. And the reason he's not righteous is because he lies and he cheats and he steals. When the truth is, that's not why they're not righteous. Jesus died and came and paid the penalty for all sin. Everybody in this earth, sin has been dealt with. The reason why they're not righteous at this moment is they have not received that free gift. And the only reason that we are is because we have, not because we don't lie, cheat, or steal. And I thank God that when we receive that free gift, a miracle takes place inside of us and we're made a new person. The old man is dead and gone and a new man has come in. And as a result of that, we act who we are. We begin to not lie, cheat, and steal because that's the change that God has made inside of us. He's freed us from those sins. He's freed us from that bondage. And when we condemn others, we are expressing our lack in the value of God's grace and kindness. When we look at others and, and, and look at them with disgust and condemnation, we're, we're saying that, you know, God's grace was maybe enough for me, but man, he's really bad. I don't know if there's enough grace in the world to save him, if there's not enough. But the truth is that we're, we're devaluing. If you look here, it says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Do we think kindly of the gift of God? Or do we think not kindly? Do we think uh, lightly of the gift of God? Do we think that uh, you know, it's, it's just not quite enough for somebody else, and if they just weren't so bad, maybe they could? And then we also find that it's not fear that leads you to God. It's not fear that makes you want to turn towards God, but it's actually his kindness that leads you to repentance. You know, there's people that, that sit out on the side of the road, and I, oh, it frustrates me so much when, when Christians or so-called Christians will stand in front of an abortion clin clinic and hurl insults and tell them they're all going to hell and, and, and you know, this fire and brimstone, and they don't understand that, that fear is not going to lead these people to repentance. Fear is not going to make them come to Jesus, but it's, it's God's love expressed in them. And how I many you know that doesn't look like love to me? You know, there's people stand out in front of strip clubs and throw picket signs up and they act like just idiots. And they think that they're going to lead these people. All they're doing is making people hate Christians because why would I want to act like this? Why would I want to be like you? When there's, there's women in these places that are broken and hurting and some of them don't even know it and they need the love of a man who will never let them down who will never turn his back on them. They need that love. And you're not showing it to him. Matter of fact, you're showing them that God is not that man. Because, I mean, like we discussed on uh, on uh, Wednesday, Christians actually means little Christ. We're supposed to be, look like him. If they, when they see us, they see him, and and hopefully they see the real him and not who we're portraying is is him. And the truth is that fear, even if it does make a difference in your life, will only keep you living right for so long. You know, you can, out of fear, you can try to do good, but it always creeps back in and sin always grabs a hold of you and you, you end up doing the very things that you don't want to do because there's no change. But the kindness of God, he sent his son to change you from the inside. That's what makes a difference. And we are the light of the world. In us, people see God. They either see a vindictive and judgmental God or one who shows love for them. People will repent or turn towards him when they see his love expressed in us. Or they're going to turn away from him when they see something other than his love expressed in us. 
This means liars, cheaters, thieves, jerks, homosexuals, slanderers, any sin that you think of. If God can change them, if God could change you, he can change them. Amen. In Romans 2, 5 through 6, it says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. You know, I told you earlier in the beginning, in the introduction, we were talking about, we look at people in this world, we look at the, the football stars and the actors and all these people that are just filthy rich. And, but they're, I mean, we see them in the, the tabloids, they're, they're not necessarily good people, they're not doing right things. And we think to ourselves, why is it that these bad people seem to have so much going for them? Why do they seem to have so much blessing? Why do they seem to, to have everything? And, and me, I'm following God. I'm trusting God. I'm doing everything He says. And, and uh, you know, I thank God He's faithful. I have a, a roof over my head and I have all the food that I need. I have everything that I need. But, man, I don't have all this expensive cars and all these things. But there's a couple things that we can see when we look at that. One, in Proverbs 10.22, it says, The blessings of the Lord make rich and add no sorrow to them. A lot of these so-called blessings, they're not doing these people any good. You know, these child stars that, that get handed tons of money. They get handed everything to them. I mean, one of the most recent examples in today's media is Miley Cyrus. We see this girl who's a young girl who, who seemed to have everything going for her. And, and as far as I know, her parents are Christians, and they were trying to raise her upright, and, and something happened. This, this blessing that she got of all this money and fame doesn't seem to be doing her any good. And I thank God that, you know, I don't look at her with judgment and uh, uh, think less of her because I, she, she needs Jesus. And God loves her just as he loves any of us. And God can make a change in her life. But unfortunately, this world has begun to twist who she is. This, all this blessing has begun to twist who she is and what she has. And uh, thank you, Joseph. Now maybe the rest of the sermon won't be all <laughs> in the recording. Sorry, everyone who's listening. We had the fan on. I apologize. But yeah, God loves her just the same as everyone else. And he can make a change in her, even though the world has, has twisted her. This money, which was supposedly a blessing, definitely was not a blessing to her. I mean, even in Christians and non-Christians alike, she doesn't have the, the greatest image right now in the world. And we also find that uh, in Hebrews 11.25 that the, the pleasures of sin are short-lived. You know, the passing pleasures of sin. You know, sin can never fill that hole in your heart. Sin will never satisfy you. It seems to satisfy you for this brief moment, but it's never lasting. You're always looking for something else. And it begins to damage you on the inside. And then we look at people, sometimes we look at people doing all kinds of stupid stuff and we're like, man, nothing ever happens to them. I mean, they are living terribly, they're doing all this stuff, and they're jerks, and instead of, instead of having anything bad happen to them, it seems like everything good's happening to them. They're, they're, they're just rude and obnoxious, but they keep getting their promotions, or all these bad things. You know, it's like, what? God, why are they getting away with all of this? But I want you to know that they're not. And the, the Bible says that they are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. You know, if if they don't accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, they will stand before Him. We'll all stand before Jesus. And do we stand before Him redeemed, or would you stand before Him 
it's a face judgment for, for, for essentially not what we've done, but it's face judgment for not accepting him. You see, every, every deed, every sin, everything must be accounted for. They're storing up wrath for themselves in heaven. And that shouldn't make us rejoice that they're finally going to get theirs. That should actually make us want more and more to give them the, the new life Jesus has to offer for them. Because things ain't going to be good for them otherwise. You know, our, our heart should hurt for those that don't know Him. That that are deceived into thinking the life that they're living, the way that they're living is good. They're deceived by the enemy that this is the great way to do things. We need to, our heart should hurt for them. You know, and another thing is that sometimes we don't ever think about is, is the enemies at work in this world as well. You know, if you have some football player that's going to be looked up to by millions of kids... You know, the devil's going to do his best to bless that person as well. So that way, the, the kids will look at him and think, that's the way I want to be. And they turn their back towards God and turn their, their eyes towards this stuff that doesn't satisfy because they think they want to be like this person with the girls and the money and the cars. Then it says, we will render to each person according to his deeds. And for a Christian, sometimes that can be a little scary. But I want you to know that... Uh, in Romans 3.28, we're going to look at next week in chapter 3, Paul says that we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works from the law. I want you to know that, that uh, the stuff that we've done, the, the sins that we've committed, yeah, an account has to be made. They have to be paid for. But I thank God that, that he sent his son to make that payment for us. See, he paid the penalty that was the requirement for our sin. And it doesn't mean just the sin that we committed before we got saved, but all sin that we have committed. Matter of fact, the sin for the entire world. That's future sins, past sins, every sin that's been committed, Jesus paid the price for. We're going to look at uh, John 3, 16 through 18. You know, this is one of those verses, this is the first verse I ever memorized. It's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life learned it when I was a teenager, and I still remember it to this day. You recall, no problem. But it's one of those verses that I think that as Christians, we almost um, uh, push it away. We kind of slide it because it's so used. We almost become jaded to what it has to say. But there's so much power in this world that he, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only son that if we would believe in him, we would have eternal life. You know, this isn't a... This isn't a uh, a verse that we should just toss by the wayside because everybody knows it and everybody uses it. It still has power. The Paul, uh, I believe as Paul said, that all Scripture is, is good for teaching and correction. But you know, when we were looking at that last verse that, that every person is going to, to recall here, it says that, that each person will be rendered according to his deeds. I think as a Christian, sometimes we, we, we start to think, oh my goodness, look at all the stuff that I've done. And we start to, to get a little bit of, little bit fearful. And I think it was Mark Twain that said that it's not the stuff in the Bible that I don't understand that bothers me, but it's the stuff that I do understand. That's pretty clear that, that uh, you're, you're going to render, be rendered according to your deeds. And there's no question that the penalty for sin is death. And it's required to be paid. 
But I thank God that God's love outshines all, and He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. And that's from 2 Timothy 2.7. Another great verse to write down. See, the truth is that as Christians, we don't have to worry about this stuff. In the sense that we're not going to, to pay the penalty for that sin. Let's go ahead and read the 16 through 18 fully through. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have an eternal life. And then it says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, and he who believes does not he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. See, the thing is, Christians, we have to understand is that, yes, the penalty for sin is death, and yes, the penalty must be paid. But it's been paid in Jesus, because it says, he who believes in him is not judged. Why are we not judged? Because we were already judged in Christ. And he who does not believe has been judged already. You know, they're not going to stand before God and, uh, and hope that their, their good column outweighs their bad column. If they don't receive the Son, they're going to, to receive the penalty of their sins. And it's, it's not a... Uh, uh, the Bible says they've been judged already. This is not something that maybe they can get out of it. There's only one way, one path to eternal life, and that is through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then many people will say, well, if God so loves the world, why do we have so many problems in it? Why is there such issues in the world? Why is there sickness and poverty and, and floods and hurricanes? And, you know, if God really loved this world, everything would be perfect. There would be no, no problems whatsoever. And I was reading a story that explained it so well. And it says, A certain preacher and an atheistic barber were walking through the city slums. And the barber said, This is why I can't believe in your God of love. If he was as kind as you say, he wouldn't permit all this poverty, disease, and squalor. He wouldn't allow those poor street people to get addicted. No, I cannot believe in a God who permits these things. The minister was silent until they met a man who was especially unkempt. His hair was hanging down his neck, and he had a half inch of stubble on his face. And the preacher said to his friend, You can't be a good barber, or you wouldn't permit a man like this to continue living here without a haircut and a shave. Indignant, the barber answered, Why blame me for that man's condition? He has never come into my shop. If he had, I could have fixed him up and made him look like a gentleman. And the preacher said to him, Then don't blame God for allowing people to continue their evil ways. He invites them to come in and be saved. You know, everybody has the invitation extended to them. We have a choice to make. And that's the key, is that God gave us the, the choice to make. And if you choose the wrong thing, as we looked at last week, that God will let you to your ways. But if all you choose to believe Him, He will give you a brand new spirit. He'll remove, he'll remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, putting a brand new spirit in you. You see, because God didn't send His Son to judge the world, but to save it. He actually came here to fulfill the law. The truth is that judgment... Ultimately, when we stand before Jesus, it's not going to be for what we've done, but what we believe. Did we believe that He came and gave us everlasting life? Did He paid the penalty for our sin? Did we accept Him as our Lord and Savior and continue living for Him? Or did we reject Him and continue to live our own lives according to what we wanted, our selfishness, our own selfish ambitions and wanting pleasures of the, of the flesh? In Romans 2, 7-11, through 11, it says, To those who by perseverance in doing good, seek glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. 
but to those who are selfish, selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, that it will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jews verse and also of the Greeks, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jews first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. As we read earlier that the kindness of God leads to repentance. The truth is that Jesus in you leads you to, to perseverance in doing good. You know, this, this, this here is not talking about the, the checklist to having eternal life. Basically, he's saying that, that when you accept Jesus Christ into your life, this is how you live. When you've accepted Jesus into your life and there was a, a change that happened inside of you, that you persevere in doing good and you want to glory and, and seek glory and honor and immortality, eternal life in Jesus, you seek these things. But those who don't have Jesus inside of them, we know that the life that they live, they're selfishly ambitious. They do not obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness and wrath and indignation. I think we've seen plenty of people like this in our lives. The truth is, without Jesus and left to our own devices, our soul is going to be distressed in this life and in the life to come. If you're left to your own devices, you don't accept Jesus, you're going to pay the ultimate penalty of, of eternity without God. Eternity in hell. You know, just to give uh, an idea of, of what I've thought hell might even, just a, a, a glimpse of what that might be like, that a separation from God, is, do you, have you ever as a kid or even tried, <laughs> I don't know if you should try it, it's probably not good for you, but lock yourself in a dark closet and have no other input but your own mind and see what your mind starts to do. And God is still with you if you'll call out to him at that point. I mean, that complete separation from God is, it, is it a, your soul will be in that kind of torment for the rest of your life if you don't accept Jesus into your life. These people out there who have chosen to obey unrighteousness and wrath and dignation, that's what they'll have. You know, like I said, when, when Paul started or ended the last chapter, he, laundry, he had this laundry list of things the Gentiles were doing and, and the Jews and their national pride were like, oh yeah, that's those people, not us. But basically he's saying that, listen guys, that not only is there no partiality with God, not only you've seen the same, but truthfully, and we're going to find here in the next few verses that you're almost sold to a higher standard, a higher level of accountability because you have the law. You know exactly what is wrong and right. God spelled it out for you. The Greeks don't even have that. So what do they have? Let's talk about what they did have. In Romans 2, 12 through 13, it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are justified before God, but the doers of the law who are justified before God. You see, the truth is that we'll find out that the, uh, the Jews who don't have the law, the Gentile, or the, sorry, the, those who don't have the law, the Gentiles, are going to be judged by the law written on their hearts. You know, there's the, the, Conscious is what we call it. You know, there's, we all know what's wrong and right. Or there's very few of us that don't, and it's, a, it's, just, it's a, a mental disorder when you don't. You know, the truth is that, that the, uh, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Basically, he's saying that when the, when the Gentiles die without the law, they're not going to be held to the standard of the law. But all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Basically, he's saying, all you Jews, you guys are talking about 
you know, all the bad things that they've done, but you, you do the same. You're going to be held to a higher standard. You having the law are going to be held accountable to the law. And then he says that it's not the, but it's not the hearing of the law who makes you just before God. You know, the truth is, is because the Gentiles never had the law, they weren't given the law, doesn't mean that they can't be just before God, which is good news for us because we are basically part of the group of the Gentiles. That's who we are, everyone who's not Jews. So we still have the opportunity to, to, to be just before God by still doing the law, whether we've heard it or not. It says right here that the hearers of the law, it's not the hearers of the law who are justified, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And for us, it's Jesus that makes us doers of the law. The Bible says that Jesus came down to fulfill the law. The law said that if you do these things, then there was a penalty to be paid. To be righteous, you had to not do these things. So Jesus came to fulfill that law by dying in our place, paying that penalty. So in essence, that we are able to fulfill the law. We are able to meet the requirements of the law. And that's how we are doers of the law. That's how we meet the standard. But talking to the Jews, he says, you have to do these things. And the Jews weren't, weren't confused by this. That's what they believed as well. Even Jewish uh, people that are culturally Jewish, if, if they didn't follow the law, they didn't believe that you were saved. And basically, Paul's saying it's not by osmosis that we're saved. And even in today's society, that you can attend church your entire life and still go to hell if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Salvation doesn't come by your parents' faith and it doesn't come by osmosis. You can't just hear about Jesus. Matter of fact, uh, uh, the Bible says that uh, Jesus said that even demons believe in God and tremble. But they're not saved. See, we have a, a huge problem, though, because no one's ever or will have ever perfectly followed and meet the requirements of the law, regardless of whether they've heard it or not. And like I said, Jesus makes it so that we can fulfill the law, that we can meet the requirements of the law. But a lot of times we, we kind of try to brush off our sin. We try to brush off the things that we've done, uh, especially people that haven't said, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need to be saved? I'm basically a good person. I was reading a, uh, an article about uh, Timothy McVeigh. You know, he was the one that did the... Uh, the uh, Oklahoma City bombing killed 168 people in 1997. Anyway, during his trial, he had one of his old army buddies come and testify. And uh, it says he made a, the article says they made a revealing observation about human nature. So according to this guy, the friend said, I've known Tim for quite a while. And if you don't consider what happened in Oklahoma, Tim is a pretty good person. You know, and I think many people have similar outlook on their own lives. Well, if you don't consider this one thing I did, I'm, I'm basically a good person. That's where the basically comes in. I'm basically a good person. But the truth is that sin is sin in God's eyes. You can't overlook parts of it. You can't brush it away. There's not, even though we like to categorize sin, you know, you know, uh, lying's not quite as bad as stealing, which is not quite as bad as, as murder, you know, which is somewhere, you know, we kind of level all the sins that we do. You know, some are worse than others. But the truth is, sin is sin. And we can't say, well, if it wasn't for that one time that I told that lie, I'm basically a good person. The truth is that, that the, the penalty has to be paid. The requirement has to be met of the law. And I thank God for Jesus because he did that for us. 
In Romans 2, 14 through 16, it says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. All men have the law written on their hearts. Like I said earlier, we're talking about our conscience. We all basically know what's wrong or right. You know, we, you don't have to tell a child most of the time what's wrong or right. And as we get older, we become more attuned to it. We know that hitting somebody, taking something that's not ours, we all know that these things are wrong. It's written on our hearts. And Paul's saying that if, if the, the Gentiles live like this, if they live a moral life because of the law written on their heart, They've become a law to themselves. Basically, that the, the, their conscience, their living morally is the standard which they'll be judged, living that the, the law that God has written on our hearts. He says that they're not going to be judged according to the law of Moses, like the Jews are who have received the law, but they'll be judged according to the law in their hearts, which God wrote in their hearts. But the deal is that judgment comes through Jesus Christ. God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ, through the lens of Jesus Christ. So basically, ultimately we have, do you believe in the Son? Do you have the Son and therefore have eternal life? Or do you not have the Son and therefore have eternal death? The truth is, without Him, the Gentiles may have a different measuring stick. They may have a different set of requirements, per se, for lack of a better word. But without Jesus, they can't meet those either. No matter which measuring stick you use, the law written on their hearts, or the law written in the book, of the, written the law of Moses, those requirements can't be met. Even before we got saved, before we knew of Jesus, you know, our conscience testified. Our conscience right here says, accused us or bared witness with us, accusing or defending us. Our conscience told us when we were doing something right, and many times we made the choice to go over our conscience. I mean, there's cartoons about it that, that have the little devil on one side and the angel on the other side, and usually the devil wins. You know, the truth is that uh, none of us can live up to the requirements of either the law written on our hearts or the law of Moses, and we need something to get us past that, and that's where Jesus came in. And just so we're clear, your conscience is not the ultimate the ultimate. Uh, measure of what is right or wrong. The truth is that, one, you can ignore your conscience long enough that you can't hear it. So you can't say, oh, just because my conscience doesn't accuse me in this, it must mean it's okay. Because you can do something long enough that it doesn't bother you anymore. And also, there are people with mental conditions, psychopaths, literally have no empathy. They have no conscience. So just to, just to be clear that while he's talking about the law written on our hearts, it's ultimately the Word of God that describes what is good and right not what we can uh, talk our conscience into believing. But you know what's unfortunate, though, is even after we get saved, our conscience can continue to accuse us. I mean, I have to remind myself constantly that I'm not who I was because there's times, there's stuff that I've done in my life and my past that will try to work its way back into my mind and make me focus on it. I have to remind myself that, no, I'm a new man. That's not who I was. In Hebrews 9.14, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
you know, Jesus' death and resurrection and that new life put inside of you also cleanses you from that, uh, that, that conscience of what you did before. You don't have to feel guilty for those things. You don't have to let them control or pull on your life because those things have been paid for and that's not who you are. Amen? Romans 2, 17 through 23, it says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? So now Paul's beginning to address those Jews that are clean on the outside. The one that Jesus called hypocrites. Clean on the outside, but on the inside, they're just filthy. You know, and the truth is, these infractions aren't necessarily outward either. You remember Jesus said that you can commit adultery just in your mind. There's things that we can do that, that uh, we don't physically have to do them to, to begin sinning against Christ. Amen? But the truth is that there's these, these, uh, these group of Jews that on the outside, they look good. I mean, they, are, they, are, they know His will. They approve the things that are essential. They instru- being instructed out of the, they're instructed out of the law. And in using that, they say that they're a guide to the blind. They're a light to those who are in darkness. They're a corrector of the fools, a teacher to the immature. They're supposed to be setting an example and teaching others, including the Gentiles. Many times in the Old Testament, it refers to Jews uh, being a light to the world as well. They're supposed to be setting an example. But Paul says, but wait a minute. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Basically, if you're teaching these things to others, you need to be following them yourselves. You can't just be looking good on the outside, but being all filthy on the inside. It says, do you, do you say you shouldn't commit adultery, but then you do it the same? You know, back then it was common practice. If you were tired of a woman, you know, you give them a certificate of divorce. And, you get a, and so you get a new wife. But Jesus said, no, that's not how it works, guys. You were given that because of your, your stubbornness or your hardness of heart. But the truth is that uh, you can even commit adultery in your mind. If you begin to think unclean thoughts about another woman, you've committed adultery even though you haven't touched her. And if you give a woman a certificate of divorce for any reason other than immorality, and you marry another, you've committed adultery. The truth is that these guys were, were, were doing the very things they were teaching not to do. You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? Now that's a tough one. There was, uh, for many centuries, pearls used to command an incredibly high price. And uh, because, you know how pearls are formed, they go down and they'd, they'd pull up the oysters and they'd crack them open. And every now and then you would find a, a beautiful pearl in these oysters. And they were very rare because not every, not every oyster guaranteed a pearl. But then somewhere along the line, somebody figured it out. And they got kind of, you know, they had this little entrepreneur spirit, and they began to slide open the, the oysters, uh, uh, their shell, and they would put in lead pellets or glass pellets. And they learned that if you did that and you kept them alive, that over time, outside of those uh, uh, irregularities or those, those impurities in the, the oysters, 
mouth, I don't know, whatever that is, you know, on their flesh in there, uh, they would begin to, to create the stuff on the outside of it, trying to protect themselves from it, and that's what created the pearls. Then all of a sudden, the market gets flooded with pearls. And from the outside looking in, if you looked on the outside, these pearls looked like real pearls. Matter of fact, they were created essentially in the same way that real pearls were created, except for they weren't natural. They were being forced to be made. And people started wondering, wait a minute, how are we getting all of these pearls? So they started doing tests. They wanted them tested because they were very expensive. And they began to do x-rays and realized that the heart of these pearls were actually lead or glass. And they weren't true pearls. And it's very much the same way as these, these Jews. They were on the outside. They looked exquisite, perfect, like they were living this incredible life. But on the inside, they had hearts of glass or lead. They, they were dirty on the inside. And you know, when we look at this and it's easy to say, oh man, I can't believe they were doing that. But we need to be very careful that it's not creeping into our own lives as well. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.27 says, But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The very man that was accusing the Jews of doing the same thing is saying, Hey, I have to make sure I don't do the same thing as well. And in our lives as well, we, we need to make sure that we're not preaching one thing and doing another. Amen? In Romans 2.24, it says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And then in Matthew 5.14-16, it says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know, the Gentiles were, were blaspheming God because of what they saw these Jewish men and women do. You know, they may have well looked at him and said, why should I follow your God when even his own people don't follow him? In 1993, there was an annual meeting of the Americans, American Heart Association where 300,000 doctors, nurses, and researchers met in Atlanta to discuss, among other things, the importance a low-fat diet plays in keeping your heart healthy. But then during mealtimes, all these doctors would get together and they were eating bacon, cheeseburgers, and french fries, and all this stuff that was terrible for them. And a reporter asked one of the cardiologists and said, don't you think, or don't you worry that you might be setting a bad example? And he said, oh no, not me, I took my name tag off. <laughs> we have to remember that we can't take our name tag off. People, that we are light on a hill. People see us and they see God, whether we want them to or not. And the way we behave impacts how they see God. We don't ever want to be stumbling blocks to those who come to Jesus because they might look at us and think of us as hypocritical. You know, when, God, when people look at us, I mean, do they, do they look and see, do they look at me and see what I want? Or do they want what I have? Do they look at me and say, you know what, he's got something that I want in my life? Or do they look at me and say, why would I want to be a Christian when he's just as bad as I am, if not worse? He says he's a Christian, but he's always cussing, or he's always flirting with the other women, or he treats people poorly, or he stabs people in the back, he's only concerned about himself. What do people see when they look at you? Because no matter what they see, if they know you're a Christian, they're going to apply it to God. You know, I was reading 
a story about a, a young man who, who was working with his pastor, and they were, they were inviting uh, uh, 30 teens in for a lock-in. So he invites one of his friends to help them out to, to kind of keep these teens in check and watch over them. And so him and his friend begin playing uh, uh, table tennis. And it's this really heated up game. Everyone's watching and it's getting really competitive. And this young girl, Tracy, one of the teenagers, walks up and steals the ball and, and likes to play a little game of keep away. And uh, he, says, he says, you know, at first I was irritated with what was going on. And, but this morning, that morning I had been studying uh, 1 Corinthians. And it says, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomely, and does not seek its own, and is not provoked. So he says, you know, I politely asked Tracy to return the ball. And then my friend and I, we were just joking around with her. And finally, she gave the ball back to us. We finished our game and everything was, was fine. He says, hours later, as they put up a, a, an evangelistic film. And, and at the end, when they gave the altar call, Tracy was among one of the six people to receive Christ. And they, they asked her to come up and, and give her their testimony later that night. And she said, I grew up in a family where nobody goes to church. I learned to get attention by making people mad at me. But earlier this evening, I saw something different. He says, when I stole the ball from those guys, they didn't get mad at me. They didn't fight back. I saw something different in those guys. And I decided right then that I wanted whatever it was that they had. And the truth is, how we behave will impact those around us. And we can either be a stumbling block or we can be that very invitation, not in our words, but in how we live that invites them to accept the Lord into their lives. I remember when I first started attending Living Hope Family Church in Tucson, and I kind of grew up in, in a Christian home-ish. Went to church sometimes, not always. And I guess I've told you guys before, a lot of my view of God was based on uh, what other people told me in TV and not so much what the Bible had to say. And I remember going over to Pastor Mike and Jane's house, me and Michelle. I think we had just gotten married not too long ago, and, and we smoked at the time. And we're sitting out, we were invited over, and, and we finally told them, hey, can we go outside and smoke? And they're like, yeah, sure. So they actually took us to a table out in the backyard. They brought a cup with water in it so we could ash, and we, and we could, you know, flick our ashes in it. And we sat out there for the rest of the evening, uh, continuing our, you know, just enjoying fellowship with them. And it was very strange, and we talked about it tonight, but it was very strange to me that, that these pastors weren't like, oh, you shouldn't smoke. Yeah, we can't have that anywhere near our house. We can't do any of these things. But they were very accepting of where we were at that moment. Now, did that mean that they agreed with us smoking and doing those things? No. But what it did mean is they were going to show us the same love that Christ did when he sat down with the sinners and the tax collectors. And that very moment made a huge impact in my life, so much so that it's completely changed how I deal with other people as a Christian. It's the, I remember I was telling you about that man that, that uh, would look down at people who were acting ungodly even though he did the same things. I used to have that same attitude. And it wasn't until that very moment that I realized that this was the attitude of Christ. This made a difference in my life. And based on that moment in my life, I've completely changed how I interact with people because I understand that if they're not saved, we can't expect them to act like Christians. The truth is we're set apart for holiness. So let us live this way and, and, like it says here, cause men to see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Amen. 
you guys mind if I go a little bit long? I have two more slides, but we've got some good stuff going on. Romans 2, 25 through 27 says, For indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he was physically uncircumcised. If he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Circumcision was the mark of the covenant between Abraham and, and God. It was basically Abraham and, and the rest of his descendants would have this, this mark. Essentially, think of it as like the signature on a document. You know, it was the, the mark that sealed the deal. It was what says that, yes, we have a covenant. And it says, Paul says, and indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, because it's you're saying that I'm part of this covenant. It says, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. What does he mean by this? Basically, if you and I were to sign a contract with one another, and you said you were going to do these things, and I said I was going to do these things, and I signed my name down, but if I go do whatever I want, and I don't do the things that I did in, my con- in, in the contract, I've basically said that my signature was worth nothing. That the, my signature has become as an unsignature, if you will, is, is I basically unsigned the contract because I didn't keep my end of the bargain. And that's what he's saying here. If you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision means nothing. You're not abiding by it. And then he says, but what if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law? Will not his uncircumcision be required, regarded as circumcision? Basically he's saying that, but the man who keeps the requirements, even though he didn't sign it, is as, is as if he signed it. He's, he's living like he signed that contract. You see, it's not the, the circumcision that made them righteous before God. It's not that. It's, it's how they lived. Matter of fact, uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 21, 28-31. He says, But what do you think? A man who had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. And the man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And obviously, the one who said he wouldn't, but did, did the will of his father. And then we find out in Genesis 15, 16, that it says, Then he, speaking of Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. You see, it wasn't the circumcision that made Abraham righteous. Matter of fact, circumcision doesn't come till two chapters later. I don't know how long that is, so I'm measuring time in chapters. I love when people do that. Two chapters later is when circumcision comes. But Abraham was already reckoned as righteous because he believed in the Lord. And the last scripture we're going to look at today is Romans 2, 28 through 29. It says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. You know, being a Jew didn't guarantee them special treatment. It says that he is not a Jew, one who is one outwardly, but it's the inside that mattered, the change, the circumcision of the heart. And Jesus said in Matthew 3, 9, Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. You know, them being born a Jew didn't make them special. God says, I can make anybody a children of Abraham. I mean, God can do it from stones. He can raise Jews if he wanted to. 
But it's ultimately the circumcision of the heart is what saves us. And this is done when our heart of stone is replaced, replaced by a heart of flesh. When that old, old man inside of us is removed and the new one is put in, that's a circumcision of the heart when we're giving a new life. And the truth is that we need a new life. Our old one is unable to satisfy the requirements of God. And it's only when we were made brand new because that old man had died with Jesus and we were raised up to newness of life with him when Jesus was resurrected are we truly able to live a righteous and blameless life before God. Amen? Praise God. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.